My name is Rachel White, and people call me the Skeptical Shaman. They say it like it's a contradiction, but it's not. For more than a decade, I've been researching and building tools for the spiritually homeless. You know, the curious but critical thinking people that, like me, have had a tough time navigating a landscape of gurus and grifters and crystal heavy people, searching for a way to fill what Neil Gaiman called that God-shaped hole, all while, of course, not getting taken. As the host of the Skeptical Shaman podcast, I want to help us all develop a map of this confusing terrain. I'm going to talk to everybody, the curious, the skeptical, the cynical, and yes, even the true believers. Together, we can safely explore the world of Wu and get closer to some meaningful existential truths. This is The Skeptical Shaman. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Skeptical Shaman Podcast. I'm your bright-eyed and bushy-tailed shaman, Rachel White, and I am joined today by someone who thought that that was really funny because she knows me pretty well, Holly Brought. Holly is probably the person closest to me in life who is a practicing Buddhist, and we'll get into that. I think a lot of people talk Buddhism. They don't really know a lot about Buddhism. They might have a Buddha hat somewhere in their house, you know, next to their uh, their towel rack or something. But it, it tends to not go very deep in our culture. And Holly is also a retired Minneapolis St. Paul police officer. And so she is filled with things that shouldn't exist together by common convention. So I like anachronisms. Holly, why don't you do a better job of introducing yourself and talking a little bit about your background? Hi, thank you, Rachel. Um, as you said, I, I came to Buddhism before I came to law enforcement. Um, I was actually introduced to it through meditation and then got into it through exploration. I formally became a Buddhist in 2012, which means that I had a teacher, uh, a root teacher, and I took refuge vows um, to stay on, on the Buddhist path. But even prior to that, it made a huge difference in my being a police officer and the the whole Buddhist concept of oneness and universality um, is huge. And in approaching people and situations, it really lent a different flavor and approach for me to what I do. Since I have retired, well, actually, I failed retirement. Um, <laughs> Love it. I retired. Uh, quite a few years ago, and found that um, I had gained a lot of knowledge in critical incidents and critical incident response and trauma for first responders, police, fire, emergency room personnel, uh, EMTs, and that I was sitting on knowledge that could help other people minimize their trauma and recover more quickly. So I joined a phenomenal group up here called the Arrowhead um, Critical Incident Stress Management Team. And And just to mention, up here is the furthest uh, point of Minnesota for anybody. 
Yeah. They're located in Duluth, Minnesota. Um, I'm in Ely, Minnesota, up in the boundary waters of the Arrowhead of Minnesota, which is a spiritual mecca for nature and yoga and mysticism and crystals and all kinds of wonderful things up here. It's a really unique community. Um, and after that, I realized that there were so many departments and organizations up here that because we're so rural and we're so scattered that they don't have the facilities to train because 90% of their personnel are volunteers. They're volunteer paramedics, they're volunteer firefighters, they're volunteer wildfire responders or search and rescue officers. So I actually developed a resiliency program that more often than not, I would just take for free to these organizations and say, here, even if you take one something away from this class, that will help you individually. It's a win. Yeah. And I'll never forget when you help facilitate a session for one of our virtual retreats around reclaiming your darkness. And you told one of the funniest dark jokes that was germane. It was the one with the mother and the daughter in the grocery store oh, yeah. that I've ever heard. And I, I think people have these stereotypical, like, uh, mutually oppositional ideas of certain things. Like if you're a Buddhist, you may not be funny in that darker kind of way. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Or for that matter, why would a Buddhist become a police officer? Aren't those antithetical to one another? And they're not. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that and those stereotypes, because in particular you, I don't know if you know this, there was a bit of an incident in Minneapolis, St. Paul, a couple of years ago. With yeah. in George Floyd, where right or wrong, you know, and I'm sure there's there's a mixture of both, but police really they misbehaved those particular officers. I think yes. it universally acknowledges that. But cops everywhere in this country kind of felt it, and everybody assumed every police officer was like those individuals, and there was a real surge of anger and the whole defund the police movement and everything else. And to me, you're like the, the stereotype breaker for cops. I mean, you're retired now, but you were Buddhist when you entered the force. Yes. So what do you think about some of those misconceptions? And what do you wish people would know about, you know, being being a Buddhist police officer and using what we, you and I have called warrior medicine in a healthy way that benefits the community instead of hurts it? Well, I think first people just have to remember that we hire from the human race you know, which is a dumpster fire. Yeah, which means, <laughs> I mean, when I was hired, we were just, women were just first really in starting to infiltrate um, the on the job as, as females. Um, we were in the 80s just starting to recognize that our police force needed to reflect our community, uh, people of color, um, people of different races and ethnicities, sorry about that, um, but that the biggest misconception is that we're somehow automatons, that because we wear the same uniform, that we all have the same mindset, 
and that we have the same approach. And, and we don't. Um, I was incredibly fortunate when I came on the job to be trained in by 25 and 30-year veteran officers. And one of the first things they taught me was the greatest weapon that I had was my mind and my words. And if I used those, there didn't need to be violence. Yeah. There didn't need to be pressure. People didn't need to be pushed. And I think that is more reflective of the majority of police officers I know than not. And in that way, it's, it's a whether they call it Christianity or some other form of, of humanizing um, their interactions with people, um, it was a good fit because um, like the the Buddhist, one of the Buddhist tenets is, you know, kindness and and good speech. Um, and for me, I think that's where most officers lie. When it came to George Floyd, we were already a powder keg yeah. of racist tension. And it was systematic, and all it took was someone to ignite that righteous anger. And did it come out sideways? Yeah, uh, it, it did. And does anyone support his murder? Absolutely not. Yeah. I think police officers as a whole were horrified, absolutely horrified that someone in their ranks would do that. And of course, in today's society, everyone's got a, a camera, everyone's got a phone, everyone is, you know, taking pictures. And that's fine because, you know, we 99% of the time, we're not doing anything wrong. And if we do make mistakes, yeah, sorry, we're human. But that was not a mistake. That yeah. was, it's fine. That was today anger that was totally uncalled for. And with regard to being in that role, you know, you spoke about compassion and, and correct speech and things like that. But don't you also think intuition helps you in concert with those things? And I, I'd love to hear from your perspective how you used that warrior medicine, like I got a bad feeling or I got a good feeling or I have a hunch or there's something around the corner when you are working as a police officer. I think all cops end up developing some form of that. Um, and it's because we function in a world of hypervigilance um, to our environment, um, to our activities, to what's around the corner. Um, and it also gets us in trouble because even after being retired, I can't turn that off. Uh, case in point, moved to uh, Ely several years ago, and I'm walking down the street, and here's a group of young boys on their bicycles, right, over on the corner by a park. And my radar goes up and goes, drug deal. <laughs> and, <laughs> Because it's just, that's what the pattern told me. You know, it was from, from where I was. 
And I walk by and they look at me, go, hi, ma'am, how are you? Are you having a good evening? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, my God, I haven't turned it off. But yeah, there's that very intuitive sense. And in my case, um, it was almost like channeling something. Um, being open to observing not just what was physically going on, um, but body language, um, trusting that instinctual uh, need to protect and need to soften and need to relax situations. And often um, I would find myself saying things that I, if I had to sit down and write them out, I don't know where they would have come from. It was just following that intuitive sense of this is what needs to be said, or yeah. this person really needs to just be heard. He or she isn't denying they did something wrong. They just want someone to hear their story. Um, and in more critical situations, it was also tremendously important um, to realize that something changed in the vibrations of the air. Yeah. Uh, something changed in this neighborhood. Uh, something is moving that's unseen, but trusting to be aware of that. And a lot of that goes back to our good old lizard brain and it, it tells us if we don't ignore it, um, those tremendous instinctual cues, sights, sounds, smells. Um, there are times I was searching for a suspect and I would smell them before I would see them or hear them. Um, it's so interesting because just so you know, that happens in my channeling work and mediumship. Yes. Smells the first thing that comes online. Yep. And it's one of those intense things, and it's one of the things connected most to trauma as well, because your sense of smell is the only sense you have that doesn't go through all your brain filters. It That's goes right through. So for a lot of people, good smells and bad smells can be great memories or they can be tremendous trauma. And as you can guess, you know, as a police officer, there were all kinds of smells. Well, you lived in Chicago. You get to so, the general city so smell. Yeah. But walking into certain homes um, with squatters, impoverished, with homeless, um, with burned bodies, with dead bodies, with murder scenes, um, all those have really strong sight smell connections to them. Um, and trusting those intuitions to keep not only myself alive and safe, but my partners who were with me or the people who were in the situation I walked into. You know? And you, you mentioned, I mean, what you just described there is a almost psychic, if not full on psychic hypervigilance. Yeah. You know, so when people go, why do you get so tired if you're doing it randomly? Because you're just up. Your vibration's up. You're running a little higher on that tone, that tonal scale. And a lot of your work has been helping people 
probably readjust after lengthy, like decades of hypervigilance, of trauma, adrenal fatigue, you know, cortisol floods. So how do you undo some of that and help people chill, get back to where they were before? What would you recommend for other people seeking that? Because they may not be cops. And they may not have been through a war, but our whole world right now is very triggering and upsetting to the nervous system. It is. And I, I think one of the biggest things um, that, that I recommend to everyone and that I, I teach uh, people is mindfulness meditation, which is um, a form of meditation that stays focused on your thoughts in, in the moments, but as a deep practice to help us realize when we're being hyperactive, uh, recognizing those thoughts and going, oh, that's just a thought. I'm not what I think, you know, but just being able to learn to track those thoughts, to pull those stories we tell ourselves apart um, and say, no, this is what's real. This is not this is what's it worth investing in. I think for anyone who's looking for not only spiritual discovery, but self-discovery, a meditation practice of their choosing um, is huge, whether you call it prayer, uh, whether it's you know contemplation. Um, there are so many different forms of uh, Meditation, yoga is a physical mind-body connection, meditation, any of those things that get us to stop and breathe, we forget to breathe in I our just life. just read statistics on this again no. the other day. Another study, I wish I could recall where it was from, but another study came out about how long we go without breathing when we read email or text because we're so geared to be scanning for the negative yes. and the emergency and the fire drill. Yeah. Yeah, I can very well believe that. Um, and when you think about it, it tends to be one of our first responses. If we're startled, what do we do? We go, you know, we yeah. catch our breath and, and we hold it waiting for the next shoe to drop, right? Mm -hmm. So in this way, it teaches us that our breath is the first thing that we receive in life. It's the last thing we let go of when we die. And that using that breath connects our mind and our body. And most meditation practices of some kind connect that breath and mind together so that we can get rid of all the other distractions around us. And that's all the world kind of is right now is a big distraction yeah and not a very pleasant one right well yeah, and we're so tuned into negativity yeah every time we turn around if they're not trying to sell me something for you know, my anxiety depression bipolar my injury attorney you know who's going to sue you for dog bites it's someone on the news sensationalizing the most horrible terrible things because it's become entertainment well and they're selling something too yeah just not as directly um 
it's it's pretty interesting. Uh, and you know, <clears throat> this hypervigilance in our culture, there's another side of that in, in like the world of woo, Molly, I don't know if you've encountered this. I actually was just talking to someone about this before I got on with you, which is why it's top of mind. So they thought they found a community and like a spiritual teacher, right? And they're still going to go through this program, but they noticed that everybody, you know, they were looking for a community that wasn't in a thought prison of yeah. like the normie kind of matrix thought prison. But then they discovered they were in a different thought prison. So it's not the normal one. It's this separate one. And it was marked by, what did he say? Something like, they seem very fixated on trauma. And you do have to do shadow work. As you know, Carl Jung thought that. Everybody thought that. Buddhism, it's all about integration and, and bringing things together and alchemizing them. However, he said they're just staying in this. What happened to my inner child? I'm a victim. You're a warrior. And he he looked at me and he said, no one's talking about what we're going to do next. <laughs> He's like, um, what's the action item? Okay, so I've had trauma and I'm a warrior and I'm a survivor. Like, what's the so what here? How do I move out of fixating on that or maybe indulging in that or bathing in that? And number one, integrate it, get some catharsis, but then convert it into something useful. I don't know yes. if you have thoughts on that because I thought that was pretty a profound question that he had it really is because the more we stay fixated and closed on our own mind the larger it becomes the deeper we reinforce it and the deeper it gets seeded um, to get through trauma we never get out of it completely it, it always leaves scars. It's always going to leave experiences. But it also leaves lessons learned um, that how did I get in that situation? How do I avoid that situation? How do I move forward? Well, I acknowledge it happened. Did right. it suck? Yeah. Does it still hurt at times? Yes. Do, it's, do I still flash back when I see, hear, or smell something specific? Yes, but can I in that moment acknowledge that that's an old trigger? That's something from the past. Mm -hmm. I don't have to keep feeding that. And I can convert that into positive energy. I can reframe that I'm a survivor. I am a warrior. I went through this. And more than that, if I learn from that experience, no matter how horrible or debasing or degrading or painful, I can send a message. I can comfort someone else. I can lead people um, to to look at their own trauma just by sharing my own, by teaching yeah. lessons learned. I just, I think our culture has a hard time with balance, with that middle path of Buddhism. And it's funny, this came up, I was reading tarot cards, a different deck that I have, where there's an image of Buddha. And they tell the story of how his father, when he was born in the palace, didn't want anyone to expose him to old age or death or all of these things and kept him very sheltered. And then one day outside of the palace, he saw an old man and was like, what the F is this? And talked to the old man. And he realized that he he was living in this, you know, abundance, right? And he embraced total asceticism. And then one day was in a river 
and he was too weak to get himself out and he almost drowned and someone helped him and fed him rice and he was flooded with these good feelings he's like i should eat and you know these two extremes of being a prince in a palace having everything and nothing unpleasant confronting nothing unpleasant to a life of sort of self-imposed limitation and uh, asceticism and finding the middle path so that you can be helpful and that what he needed to achieve wasn't manipulating external circumstance, right? right? It was internal. And I just think in the spiritual world, it's like so many people go without having their trauma acknowledged or talking about it, that then when they come into that community, it's kind of all they want to do, but that's just another trap. The middle path is kind of the way, maybe? Well, I think that coming into that community, it's really important to normalize that, yeah, you're traumatized and this was horrible and this happened and you're not alone. But it also means, you know, what are you, like you said, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. It's like there's a there's a Buddhist fable about um, this village on a river and these dead bodies started to float by. Um, people were, were drowned in, and every day the number kept getting greater. And so the village said, you know, what are we going to do? We have to save these people. We can't just watch them flow down river and drown like that. Mm. So they devised this incredible net, and they started catching these people and saving them. But the point was that no one in the village actually went upstream to find out why people were getting into the river and drowning to begin with. Right. And I think that's where like Buddhism and meditation says, okay, so what is the cause of my suffering? Yeah. And how much of my own suffering am I causing myself? And is there a way to, is there a path? away from that suffering but it, it needs to acknowledge that yeah we all suffer yeah. we, we there is dissatisfaction in life um we all suffer to some degree and it's because of what we want or crave or hang on to um but there are ways past that but first we have to acknowledge our own part in that we have to go yeah. up river and find yeah. out why people are being thrown in the river in the first place. You know, that made me think of something Duncan Trussell, I heard him say recently. He's a he's a hilarious comedian. He actually has a dummy that he does a ventriloquist act with. Oh, I'm fine. not even kidding. Yeah, that he inherited from his father. It's very creepy and funny, but he's he's deep Buddhist, like deep cuts. He's brilliant, like verbally, mentally, very erudite, you know, one of those people where you hear him speak and you're like, God damn it. Like, what's going on in your brain? Why can't my brain do that? <laughs> but he was explaining the Buddhist concept of ignorance. And he was saying it's not just like you don't know stuff and you're not to blame. It To him, at least, he said you have to actively ignore that which is around you or within you. Like you're, you're expending effort to ignore. And it's actually not as cool in Buddhism as it is in modern society like oh well they're ignorant they don't know and he's like yeah but you know you have to kind of work to ignore the homeless man on the street you have to ignore that that's a human being right you have to ignore a lot around you to be unaware of things and i in that moment i was like oh we need buddhists 
because I have a problem where I can't ignore anything. That's its own issue. That's a mental illness that I have. And it's a part of my psychic, you know, warrior medicine thing of any disturbance in the forest, any bit of data. I pull threads. I pull threads and I go on scavenger hunts. And it doesn't lead to very happy places at present in our society. But I think my number one frustration with other people is when I, I get the feeling they're actively ignoring the reality around them. Yeah. Like it, it kind of gives me anxiety a little bit. I don't know if you have thoughts on that or that, you know, Duncan's little thing about you have to actively ignore to be ignorant. Well, and I think for in in my life, uh, mindfulness of being in that moment and living in the moment and living in a state of awareness is Buddhism. Yeah. That concept of uh, not getting carried away by my story or not being so busy that I am ignoring things yeah. around me, that mindful uh, moments. In fact, I, I to help me come back into mindful moments and, and what I call a pause during the day or throughout the day just to stop and breathe and and be aware of what I am and what I'm doing and what's going on is we have two phenomenal ravens that live in our neighbor's pine trees and they, I call them Bob and Bonnie. And they live here year round. Um, and for those of you who don't know what a raven is, it's like uh, in between an eagle and a crow. They're huge. They're and gigantic. They're actually a songbird. And of course, they're, they're a lot, they're a trickster, and they're a lot to Native American tales and that. But the upshot is that they would sit in the tree and they would mock my laugh or they would just do all these wonderful sounds to communicate yeah. or they would sing along with the radio um, in their own tones. So what I said to myself was because they're all around, there's so many ravens that that's a good cue. Every time I hear a raven, yeah, I should just stop and breathe and appreciate the moment I'm in and the wind in my face and and my breath in in my body and the smells that are around me or whatever I'm touching, um, just being present in that moment. And so I use a lot of those things. Some people use those uh, smart watches where a tone goes off where they yeah. stop every 15 or 20 minutes just to breathe. I mean, how crazy is our society that we've got to do that? Just to oh, remind ourselves crazy. to breathe, right? <laughs> yeah, we're wildly crazy. Yeah. My running, my new running joke is I spent thirty grand in therapy and did all this work and extricated myself from toxic family dynamics to find myself surrounded by crazy people. Yeah. I want my money. <laughs> like I thought I was getting away. <laughs> I was digging yeah. out. No, yeah. you just discovered the depth of your own shamanism, and as such, that obligates you somehow universally and spiritually to heal, to reach out, to be there, to guide. Um, yeah. And some days it's not what you want to do, but it's it's like your universal gift or your, where your depth of spirit comes from that that true self has to come out, whether we're tired or stressed 
Well, um, it doesn't matter. We, we've been given gifts, and it's, it's up to us to use them. A lot of people think that being a shaman means you know everything and you're happy all the time and your life is good. And they also think that if you, let's say, leave a, a corporate job or, in your case, like leave the police force and they're going to become a Reiki practitioner or a healer or a coach, that everything is going to be enjoyable. Yeah. And there's no scenario in life where literally everything is enjoyable. And that's where, you know, you and I have talked a lot because you're very knowledgeable on the Stoics, right? Yeah. And I happen to love the Stoics too. And people don't see Stoicism as being very Buddhist or shamanic, but it is actually, totally is. And you just said, you know, you have a gift. And I think, who was it? It was um, RFK Jr. in an interview said, he, he called it his bird because someone said, you know, Everybody thinks you're crazy. Whether that's right or wrong, they think that. And you <laughs> may not think that. And you're dealing with this and you deal with it from your own family and all this stuff. And, and he asked him, like, what is that like? How do you deal with that? Like, what are your tools or processes to deal with that? And he quoted the Stoics and Camus, who was an existentialist, and said, you know, the greater my burden, the greater my joy. And But explained it and it actually made sense, which is, if you're waiting to enjoy everything as bliss, as enjoyment, as like, um, if you want to indulge in that, you're going to be waiting a long time. But if the feeling of your burden every once in a while when it kicks up and you don't feel like doing something, you do it anyway. If you can find joy in your burden, what an achievement, right? Yes. And it's not that it always brings joy, but it brings a sense of peace. And meaning. Um, or a sense of accomplishment, or that I've been used by some higher power or consciousness yes. to affect something. There are many times that I walked into situations um, and households that were just tremendously painful and hurtful and sad. Um, and I was never going to give them joy Right. I could give them support. I could show them a way. I could get them a resource. I could at sometimes just scoop them up, put them in my squad car, and get them out of the situation. Even yeah. if it was temporary, at least it was bringing something helpful forward. I think that's uh, when we're the most godlike, is when we, we leave our own concerns for our own immediate joy or maybe safety. You know, like the uh, the other thing that was referenced in that interview was Albert Camus' book, The Plague, which of course I immediately boxed. I'm like, what is this existential book I haven't read? I went through such a Nietzsche, you know, phase. Like, yeah. how did this escape me? And it's about a plague in this walled village in Northern Africa. And no one knows what it is yet. And everybody who gets it dies. There's a doctor there. And the story is his diaries. Have you read this? No. It's a big bummer, but it's also great. Hence, you know, taking joy in something that's not necessarily pleasant. And he's like, I can't go out there. I'm just going to die. And I can't help them. Right? Like, I. so what's the return on investment here? What's the functional thing that either I or they get out of it? And eventually, towards the end of the book, the whole point of it is he leaves his room because he's at least going to offer them comfort. And he knows he's going to die, but that's something that he can do and only he can do. And that's worth something. Like it yeah. may not mean it saves their lives on paper, but he's saving them in some other way. 
Yeah, and saving them to the degrees they needed in the moment. And saving I, himself because he felt shame yeah. for just sitting in his room and he felt ineffective and sort of impotent as a, as a doctor. And I think the point of that is like life or the, the universe will render us that way. All of our little tricks or education or, you know, tools, they're not always going to be useful. They're going to be moments of surrender. Oh, absolutely. And it's part of our human connection. We are meant to be social creatures. We're meant to live and nurture ourselves in communities and in groups. And to try to separate ourselves from that um, will only bring us another level of pain um, rather than peace. Yeah. Yeah, and social media is separating us, but it's tricking people into thinking they're connected. Yeah. It's very devious. It's brilliant, kind of. Diabolical, some might say, right? Yeah. Like, look, you have a community that doesn't know where you live, has never met you, won't show up when you need it, you know, won't offer a helping hand, but they're here. Oh, gee, thanks for joining. Yeah. <laughs> the, the candy bar of communities. You'll be hungry 20 minutes later. Um. I have to ask you too, I hope you don't mind me saying this. It's it's with regard to how awesome your journeys are. Can I just mention this without okay, getting yeah. into details? So when you and I were working together, you have the most detailed off the chain shamanic journey meditation experiences of anyone I've ever known. And you would storyboard these goddamn things and send them to me. And it was like Christmas morning. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. Why do you think your journeys were so detailed? Do you think it's because of all of your Buddhist meditation? Do you think your your mind, your warrior medicine, it was just always there? I think so. And I think it took a measure of surrendering to them. And I think both in Buddhism and in my own life, that just the visualization and the symbolism um, that came out of those journeys were something deeper. Uh, it was reaching for something deeper in my psyche, connecting uh, directionality and environments. And uh, they were always and, linear, too, though, for as deep and metaphysical and cosmic. The storyboards were, were rational. And you, me, as a reader, as someone opening that document, I got the plot. And that's not how a lot of these come in, data-wise. I was like, this is amazing. Like, this should be a movie. <laughs> All I know is for me as an experience, it was phenomenal. Um, and unlike some kinds of meditations or or journeys where I don't, where things are fuzzy, I don't really always remember something vividly. When I started to do those traumatic journeys, I've never traveled so vividly before in my life. Um, and it was was very linear. It was very um, amazing that I would see symbols or colors or smells or places um, that I had no frame of reference for, but symbolically gave me something in the moment you know whether it was connecting with the the four major elements or just air or peace or sometimes it brought visions that i had 
no way of interpreting in the moment. But with your guidance, found out, well, maybe if I just waited, it was, you know, uh, maybe a little prophetic. Maybe it was something to come. Yeah. I think it's have- funny that my guidance is, why don't we wait and see? Can you imagine if I was a doctor? I'd be like, I don't know, keep an eye on it. I just realized how funny that sounds for the first time ever. Yeah, like, oh, it'll make sense in a while. That must sound like such a, a punt sometimes well, to like, people. It's like take two aspirin and call me in the morning, but it works. Um, yeah. Because it gives us a time to pause. And one of the things I learned was not to overinterpret things. Just let them unfold because they, they were miraculous all by themselves. I didn't need to add detail or definition to them. They did that all by themselves. Well, what's interesting is another client and I who has journeys like yours. So lots of details, you know, high level of linearity and things like that is we, and we figured this out at the same time. This was not something I knew going into this. The more often you go into the meditation and the more data you take note of when things in life happen, you actually pay more attention to those things because you have like this data set. Yes. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. This is becoming signal instead of noise. And in that moment, I realized I'd been doing that and living more intuitively, but because I'm always going into spirit to sort of like trawl for data. Like you're going, you're scooping it up and then you come back to life and life happens. And then they sort of, your data and your life line up and you know how what actions to take or what direction to go in. Yeah. And I didn't have an explanation for that mechanism until I yesterday, literally yesterday afternoon. And that's, I think that's amazingly true. And I think it's part of that intuition meets hypervigilance and yeah. the logic of the brain. You know, our brain wants to make things factual, rational, but the spiritual side of us goes, oh, you poor thing. It's just not that way. You know, and it allows us to open up the step away from our rigidity, you know, and open us up to this whole different world of just collecting, you know, like uh, someone collecting blossoms in the garden. I'm collecting events or people or signs. Um, Maybe they mean something. Maybe they don't. But they'll fall into place when they're meant to be. Yeah, she was shown something with clay and mud and was like, whatever, kind of dismissed it. But, you know, wrote it down and then um, was given a, uh, a like a homeopathic medical remedy was offered to her with those ingredients. She was like, wait a minute, this might be it and gave herself physical relief. And it's like she wouldn't have maybe said yes had she not had the quote random reference do you know what i mean yeah and i wonder if ancient people did this all the time just because you live life better you're healthier you know what steps to take what what right action might be medically socially spiritually even going out hunting right if you were in journeys or meditations and you saw an accident and then you're out with a hunting party and you see the landmarks from the dream you might go hey 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 stop I don't have a good feeling about this. I've seen this place and it doesn't go well, right? Yeah, exactly. Very much so. Um, And again, it goes back to that sense of survival that 
our intuition um, saves us, but it also can nurture us that way. What would you recommend to someone out there who's been through a trauma, whether it was a natural disaster or maybe, you know, a violent crime, they got mugged. That's happening a lot these days, according to my clients in Chicago. I know they can't, you can't fix their trauma with like a quick tip or trick, but just one thing that you think everybody can bring into their day that might help them. I think in, in the cases of that kind of trauma, not to be afraid to seek help, that it's okay not to be okay, and to find a practitioner who isn't just a yes man, but understands and works with the kind of trauma, whether it's separating from a cult, or it's being loved, or it's domestic abuse, um, not to stay isolated, with that trauma, but to seek, seek help. Yeah. It's really interesting. I have to tell you, it never occurred to me before you said that, but a lot of people I know have um, been victims of violent crime recently in the last year. So I don't think any of them have gone to get help. Yeah. Yeah. And they've, you know, I can't imagine what that's like to live with. I mean, I have PTSD, but for things that happened a very long time ago, and I was put in therapy because I was a child when a lot of it yeah. happened. And then when it happened again as an adult, I knew to go to therapy like yes. right away. Right. And it's, I'm still all messed up. I can't even imagine what the people who, who aren't getting help are feeling. Yeah. And, and they end up being stuck. It's like, uh, like it's somewhere in Dante's circles of hell that they're, yeah. they're trapped in, in trauma. They're trapped in their own hell. And, I think depending upon where your role is in life, we get so stigmatized. Um, you know, like in the 70s, it was a rage, like, I'm going to therapy. Um, now it's it's shaming in a lot of cultures and a lot of uh, um, different fields where, you know, professionals are actually afraid to go and seek help for their trauma because they think if they get an actual psychological diagnosis, it's going to threaten their livelihood or their well-being. Where say they won't go because then they won't be able to own a gun, and they're ex-military. And if they get diagnosed with PTSD or if they go get help for suicidal ideation, a red flag law is going to get triggered and their guns are going to get taken away. I've heard that from multiple people. Yeah, and that that's really hard because that if you're a hunter or you're right. a warrior, um, that gun has become an extension of your survival, and it's very symbolic. But it's also critical to realize that it is symbolic, and yeah. you need to release that um, to get better. Well, Holly, you know you're the reason why we're reading a Buddhist book for the first month of the Totem Book Club. I can't wait to start reading it. I just, it's so out of my wheelhouse. You sent me the wise heart. Thank yes. you for that. That I was like, I want to read things with other people that are going to knock me off balance where I'm not a subject matter expert. And also, I had a client, a new client friend. I just did her podcast. She came on Sunday for the Equinox Party from Dallas. 
Okay. Just, Rachel, I started reading that book. I go, it's not October, man. You're already like beating me at my own book club. Right? <laughs> and she said, though, the first chapter, she had a huge revelation with regard to some shame. I haven't even read a, a single sentence of it yet, but apparently it was a huge game changer for her already. So thank you. Oh, that's excellent. And it's uh, it's kind of deceptive and, you know, it, the titling about, you know, Buddhist psychology, but it is. It's, it's philosophy and it's psychology, but it just starts you at such a whole different place where the Buddhist concept of self is that I'm naturally good and that I'm naturally okay. And I was born a human being, which all by itself is an incredible rarity. I mean, you think about all the DNA out there, all the potential birth cycles. You know, I could have been born in Ethiopia. I could have been born uh, in a pack of rats in, in Chicago sewers. Um, the whole concept that I was born a human being and can acknowledge that, and that that is naturally in and of itself a universal gift is a whole different place to start because Buddhist psychology doesn't look at us as being broken or at the symptoms. It looks at us as starting from a place where we are by nature good and we have ways to enhance that. And as you know, we have a sponsor here. In the Skeptical Shaman podcast, it's Totem Readings and the Totem Tarot deck. And if we don't pull one of their cards, um, she's threatened me with a pass on my and house. Rightfully so, right? Rightfully so. It's so my favorite running joke is calling myself a dictatorial tyrant of unmitigated <laughs> portion. But I, I, I was shuffling and a card slipped out. It was too good not to show you because you got Hecate. It's our version of the final judgment card, but it, she's the three-faced goddess, maiden, mother, crown, governs yes. crossroads, the primary goddess of most witchcraft, people who practice ritual witchcraft. Yes. And what I like about her is she's kind of like a, a karmic, she's a bit of a cop. Like, you know, are you good? Are you bad? Are you going to get punished or rewarded? You know, governing a sense of cosmic justice, particularly with regard to bad men. You know, there's a whole uh, myth around her turning men who harm women into hellhounds, and they have to work with her and help her hunt down other bad men until they've served their sentence as a hellhound. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Not only uh, dishes out her direction, but here you go. This is what you got to do to get right. It will, and what I love about it, too, is there's so much toxic positivity in the woo world where everybody's like, let's just all talk and sitting this and doing this and it's like yeah but there's some people out in the world that are making sure the bad people stop yeah. some of them are spiritual practitioners they're doing it on the astral or people who take right action yes. not violent action nothing like that but who do something and and hecate is one of those beings she's not an observer or watcher she's a she rules a certain swing if you will she makes decisions that have impact yeah, I like that. I like that card a lot. We made it look a little bit like, you know, the Gozer building in Ghostbusters, just to be smart enough. <laughs> I, I just like. watched that again and not that long ago, and it's just, I forgot how hilarious it was. 
but also, you know, there's a lot of prophetic stuff in there if you look below, below the surface. Molly, you, as you know, I had to kick a Sumerian demon out of my house last month. So yeah. it couldn't be more. I, I was joking with my husband. I go, I have more in common with the plot of this movie than any episode of Succession. Like, <laughs> my life has more to do with this crazy prehist. What does he call her? Let's show this prehistoric bitch how we do things downtown. <laughs> <laughs> the dialogue in that movie. It's a classic. It's hilarious. Gozer's Gozer's challenging. I, I like Hecate a lot. And I also think we're heading into an interesting time of not final judgment like Revelation and a world stuff, but of karmic debts getting paid, of bad people maybe getting exposed, things getting tied up. Well, and like you mentioned before, in interpreting the word revelation itself, it's it's a lifting of the veil. It's yeah. a seeing. And I think if we, in the positive sense of that revelation coming, I think these practitioners of bad medicine and these preachers of evil and the scammers and all those things are going to come into focus and they're going to be revealed. It doesn't mean the end of the world, but hopefully an awakening in this world. Listen, from your lips to Hecate's ears, right? Amen. Yeah. Thank you, Ollie. Thank you, Rachel. Good to talk.